But I thought we might think together, at least we'll start out that way, and I may change my mind, about some great decisions in the Bible. Now, one could talk on and on. There are so many decisions made in this book, good and bad, but we'll just touch on a few. It is an age of indecision, as you know. It's a time that our Lord described as one of perplexity. We're to have such a time in the last days, and it means the state of having lost one's way, and we have. There never has been so much indecision. So many people are like a donkey between two bales of hay, undecided which one to eat. During the Civil War, one fellow didn't want to belong to either side, so he put on a blue coat and gray pants and got shot at from both directions. <laughs> Somebody asked a friend the other day, do you have trouble making decisions? And he said, yes and no. You used to follow Hambone in the paper when he was getting out his wisdom, and it was pretty wise sometimes. He said one reason why some folks never get nowhere is they won't go nowhere when they started. <laughs> That's pretty good. And a great many people make that mistake, and their lives turn out instead of a sword with one sharp point. They turn out to be like brooms uh, with the straws pointing in all directions. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. History is a record of decisions, good and bad. There used to be a book, The Ten Decisive Battles of the World. Well, there are decisive decisions. Our lives are the sum total of our decisions and their consequences. Decision determines destiny. Character is the finished product of the choices we make that gel and crystallize and get set and harden into a pattern and into a mold. Revelation 22, 11 says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy. Let him be holy still. You see, you get set. We make decisions, and then the decisions make us. History is made by men of decision, good and bad. I was out at the Hermitage, the home of General Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson. They told about his old servant on the place who knew the general quite well. Somebody asked this interesting old black man about uh, General Jackson. They said, do you think he went to heaven? Well, sir, he said, if he made up his mind to go, he went. <laughs> well, in a way, that's true. You don't go unless you do make up your mind that you're going, that's for sure. This world is not moved by double-minded men unstable in all their ways. Dr. Gambrell, great preacher of Texas of years ago, used to have a piece about the neighborhood dog. He said the neighborhood dog is unattached, wears no collar, has no home ties, feels no responsibility to keep the stray cats and dogs off any place, goes around smiling, wagging his tail, barks as much at one house as another. Broad-minded dog. Makes up with everybody. 
never gets in the fight, nothing worth fighting for. He said, judicious barking is a fine trait, but miscellaneous barking is not worth anything, confuses dogs that are hunting something. He said, there are a lot of folks like that in the church, too broad-minded to join any church. They run around all the churches, one church good as another, and they don't love any church enough to be of any use. Hobos in the dog world and deadbeats in the religious world, a thousand of them would never support a church or send a missionary. That's the kind of writing they used to do. It's kind of plain, but I yearn to read some more of it from some modern writer these days. We're not committed. So many people are not committed to one master. They've never sold out to Jesus Christ. They're like the boy in the Lord's parable who said, I go, sir, and went not. They begin to build and they're not able to finish. Mr. Looking Both Ways, as Bunyan describes him. No root, no depth, as our Lord describes him. Wilbur Smith says that one of the greatest texts in the New Testament is, Lord, I will follow thee, but... Oh, how many people have never gone anywhere with Jesus Christ for that very reason. But first, let me do this. But first, let me do that. And they never go. The Bible is a record of great decisions, good and bad. The first one was made by Eve in the garden. And by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But by the obedience of one, many are made righteous. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, and that suffering servant set his face like a flint and steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. My Lord didn't have a hard face, I'm sure. Anything but that. But he had a set face. There's a difference between a hard face and a set face. We ought to have set faces. We should have made up our minds. The world's full of sin, and a devilish decision produced the cause, but a divine decision provided the cure. And one decision remains. God has invested every man with the responsibility of choice. He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. It's already settled. Matthew twelve thirty. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. That leaves no room for the middle class. Third class, no. But you can change from lost to saved, from sinner to saint. No man makes up his mind to go to hell. People don't go to hell that way. But they're already condemned until they choose Christ. I know we have those who say I'm open-minded on the subject. Well, I'm open-minded about some things. I don't know whether anybody lives on Mars or not. I'm open-minded about that and really don't care. Much better. But there are some things I am not open-minded about. I made up my mind about Jesus Christ a long time ago. You go around with your mouth open and never clamp down on food, and you will starve to death. You go around with your mind open and never clamp down on something, you will starve spiritually. Somebody said some folks think they have an open mind and they just have a cracked head. <laughs> I remember when the Titanic went down in 1912. That's ancient history to a lot of you youngsters around here, but. That wonderful ship was built 
to be unsinkable, and the only thing it ever did was sink. <laughs> On the first trip, the very first trip, all kinds of passengers were aboard, millionaires, social celebrities, people of moderate means, poor folks down in the steerage. But after they struck the iceberg, and just a few hours later in the canard lines in New York in the offices, there were only two lists, lost and saved. Grim tragedy had leveled all distinctions. On life, see, there are scores of classifications and categories, but when the voyage is over, it won't matter much. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, Julia, Grady, or the colonel's lady, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whether you lived in the backwoods or on the boulevards, whether you drove a Rolls Royce or pushed an apple cart through town, won't matter much. All these trivialities will disappear because there'll be only two lists, lost and saved. That list is already posted with this difference. As long as you live, you can still change from lost to saved. Thank God that's possible. We will study a few Bible decisions, some bad, some good, that we may be warned and encouraged. The scarcest thing I know about today is a man who has actually made up his mind to serve God. We're double-minded. Adlai Stevenson, when he was with the UN, said he had invented a new word, yo-y-o. And they said, what does that mean? Well, I said, it could mean yes or no. <laughs> we have a lot of yo folks today. Charlie Wilson, you remember, was in Eisenhower's cabinet. Charlie Wilson was a General Motors man, didn't know a thing about politics, didn't know any better than to say what he thought. Now, I suppose do that in politics. He said, I want a one-armed man next time I have a secretary. They said, why? He said, I'm so tired of hearing them say on the one hand this and on the other hand <laughs> So we need to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Repentance is a change of mind. Not a change of opinion, but a change of mind about sin, self, and the Savior. Sorrow for sin, forsaking sin, turning to God. You can't change your heart. Only God can do that, but you can change your mind. And if you change your mind, God will change your heart. And that's the way it is. Now, just for a few moments, let's think about Abraham's decision. And, of course, you read about that in Genesis, but you read about it in Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. How simple that is, just obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promises in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I love that looking for a city. Abraham was the patriarch of the Jewish nation. 
and also the father of the faithful, the progenitor of all who walk by faith and not by sight. He was not only a patriarch, he was a priest. He set up an altar wherever he went, and you're a priest if you're a Christian. You believe in the priesthood of the believer. You don't offer sacrifices for sin. That's been offered once and for all, but same book, Hebrews, says in the very next chapter, tells us what our sacrifice is. Hebrews 13, verse 12. There's a wherefore in verse 12 and a therefore in verse 13. Jesus kept his wherefore. What are you doing about your therefore? Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Let us, here's where we come in. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. And then this sounds like what I just read about looking for a city. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Now here are our sacrifices. First person, ourselves, let us go forth unto him. Second sacrifice is praise by him. Therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And then there's a third sacrifice, possessions, verse 16, but to do good and to communicate, communicate here, does not mean to talk on the telephone. It means to give to the Lord and to his cause. Don't forget it, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And don't forget verse 17. The pastor, the preacher comes in here, obey them that have the rule over you. This is not the government at all. It's your preacher. Obey him and submit yourselves to the preacher. For they watch for your soul as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. And that's your priestly sacrifice as a believer. Person, praise, possessions, and your obligation to the man of God. As long as he's living right and preaching the truth, you obey him. Then Abraham was not only a patriarch and a priest, he was a pilgrim. I thought I had a new title for this when I first wrote out this article. Abraham, the first pilgrim father. But I found that F.B. Meyer had beaten me to it a long time earlier. And so there isn't much original. Some of you remember old Baxter McClendon, Cyclone Mac. He said, when I started out preaching, I said I'd be original or nothing and soon found out I was bold. Abraham is the first and outstanding example of the believer as an exile and an alien. We're strangers and sojourners, he was, and he's called that in both testaments. We are, Psalm 39, 12, 1 Peter 2, 11. God's people are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven. They are citizens of heaven trying to get through this world. Now, you try to get that across to the average Sunday morning congregation, it's well nigh hopeless because most of them have driven their tent pegs down in this world and have no notion of moving. This wonderland of plastics and gadgets and deep freezes and giveaway shows and ranch houses in suburbia and push-button living, that's good enough for the saints now. Bunyan's Christians, you know, had no use for Vanity Fair because their clothes, don't forget it, and their conversation and their conduct were all out of place. Nowadays, you can't distinguish them from the worldlings. When have you heard anybody singing in the sweet by and by? 
I get amused sometimes at a congregation of well-clad, well-fed, well-housed Americans on Sunday morning singing, a tent or a cottage, why should I care? My soul, they're trying to buy a bigger one all the time. <laughs> Credit cards and social security, who's interested in being bound for the promised land? They laugh about pie in the sky and they exchange it for retirement benefits. They feather the nest and then they find that they can't fly. I was in Mason City, Iowa some years ago in meetings and I noticed down in the lobby of the motel there was a poster advertising the local attractions, industry, schools, the library, downtown business section, and one church as illustrating the religious element. Well, I think the early Christians and the Acts of the Apostles, they didn't make the billboards in Jerusalem. They were a hated sect and too big a nuisance and stirred up too much commotion to be listed with pride by the city fathers. They kept Jerusalem in turmoil and were never classed as civic assets. The early Christians were out of step with their times and didn't try to get in step. And Roy L. Smith says they never seemed to worry about whether or not they were making a good impression on the newspapers, the Chamber of Commerce, the Labor Federations, the philosophy departments of the universities, and the secret service of the Roman government. It really didn't matter. And another has said, we are not public relations experts sent to establish goodwill between Christ and this world. This is A.W. Tozer. We're not commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big businessmen or the press or the world of sports or modern education. We are not diplomats but prophets. And our message is not a compromise but an ultimatum. The Bible says we're colonials because our citizenship, we're a colony of heaven. And we're also nationals because we belong to a holy nation. We're utterly distinct and different from anybody and everybody and everything else in this world. And we're not to be conformed but transformed. We're not to spend our time trying to keep up with the Joneses but in step with Jesus Christ. And another reason why there are not many pilgrims these days, the church has gone into social reform business and vanity fairs being done over in a vast urban renewal project under religious auspices. We once believed with old Matthew Henry that this world is our passage and not our portion. We now, instead of feeling like traveling on, as the old song has it, we feel like settling down. The scriptures warn against the love of money, the cares of this life, the pride of it, love not the world, lay up your treasure in heaven. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Be content with food and raiment and such things as you have. Now, of course, God's people have a right to the comforts of life. There isn't any holiness in a hair shirt. But this new fad that's going around today, equating Christianity with earthly prosperity, is hard put to it to find texts in the New Testament for that position. My Lord had nowhere to lay his head. And the early saints don't bear much resemblance to the new variety who are not out to overcome the world but enjoy it. These heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 don't remind us of modern successful Christians. These old apostles were the scum of the earth and the spectacle to the world for the scandal of the cross, the three S's. 
How many volunteers do you think I'd get today if I'd say I'm out trying to recruit some folks willing to be called the scum of the earth? Spectacle to the world for the scandal of the cross. You see, the inspiration of most Christians today is not the cross-bearing disciple, it's the popular big shot. Something happened when Constantine paganized Christianity, trying to Christianize paganism. We lost our pilgrim character and the marks of our heavenly citizenship. We settled like Lot, and I think tomorrow night we'll talk about his decision, and that was a bad one. Settled in Sodom. It's a dark day when we forget that we have no home down here. It's possible to have a big bank account and be poor in spirit, but the combination is pretty rare. Smyrna, you remember, was a pious church, but Smyrna piety doesn't go along with Laodicean prosperity, not much. Christians are transients, they're not residents. They're spiritual children of Abraham, not sons of Lot. I've read of a wild oak flying across on migration with its companions. And this one decided to come down and alighted in a barnyard where there was plenty of corn and food to eat. Stayed there an hour, stayed there a day, stayed there a week, stayed there the season. And then one day he was feeding out there and he heard a familiar sound high up in the air. He looked and it was his erstwhile companions on their way back. There was a momentary impulse to join them and he tried to rise, but he had fed too well. He could reach only the eaves of the barn. The story goes that he said, oh, well, so what? I like it here. Down he went. And the day came when he never even heard them. When they went across. I may speak to somebody here tonight that there was a time in your life when, although you were in this world and falling in love with it, it, it was still possible for a good old gospel sermon to shake you up and a good old gospel hymn give you a desire to mount up on higher ground, the song of saints, on higher ground. But you just keep on feeding on this world. And you'll get to the place where no sermon will phase you and no song will move you and you'll say, so what? I like it down here. That's the tragedy of losing our pilgrim character. God said just three things to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1, get out. We read the terror started toward Canaan, got as far as Haran and died there. That's about as far as many pilgrims ever get. Our Lord spoke about hating the loved ones, letting the dead bury the dead, forsaking everything to follow him. Not many people today ready to sing the way of the cross leads home and mean it. I've had it sung all over America in my meetings. One of my messages on worldliness. Always having to sing the way of the cross leads home and everybody knows the first verse. No other way but the way of the cross and so on. If I get home, I've got to go that way and so on. You could take a vote and everybody would get up, sure. Did you ever try a vote on the last verse? Then I bid farewell to the way of the world to walk in it nevermore. You try a vote on that and if you want to chill the meeting. Some of them won't be back the rest of the week. I run off half my crowd sometime with that. Pilgrim Christians must renounce this world. It's no friend of grace to help us on to God. 
And when prospects show up for church membership, nothing's said today about telling this world goodbye. They'll grow out of it, you say, but they don't. So they become a flock of worldlings not about to give up their idols. Abraham didn't debate it. He didn't argue about it. So Abraham departed. I like the way it says it. By faith, Abraham obeyed. That's all. God not only said, get out, he said, go on. And I read, and Abraham departed and went forth and passed through and removed the birds, pile up. He kept moving. He went out not knowing whether he went. Are you dead certain and sure tonight that you can honestly say wherever he leads me, I'll go anywhere with Jesus? I can safely go. I heard a preacher tell some time ago how that when he was a little boy, his granddad always took him little trips around over the neighborhood, liked to have him with him. And one day, uh, granddad said, come and go with me. And he said, I had a few other ideas in my mind. And I said, where are you going, granddad? And with that, granddad took off by himself. When he got back, I said, why did you leave me? He said, you said, where are you going? He said, if you had wanted to go with me, it wouldn't have mattered where I was going. If you really want to go with Jesus, it won't matter where he's going. Are you certain tonight that you can say anywhere with Jesus? I can and I will. No. Out in the jungle, some travelers thought they were lost, and they said to the guide, well, there's no road. What in the world? Why did you bring us out here? What are we going to do? He said, there is no way. I'm the way. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're going to get in some jungle, and you say, Lord, I can't. How in the world are we going to get out of this? And your Lord will say, don't look for a path. I am the way. He's it. God doesn't furnish you road maps. It's not whither, it's whom. You're not on a pleasure trip. There are joys on the road, but there are serious responsibilities. Abraham had them. You remember that God told him to give up Ishmael. That was the worst thing in Abraham's life, born out of the will of the flesh. And God took him away, and he never did come back. And then he said, I want Isaac. Isaac was the best thing in Abraham's life, born in the will of God. God took him and gave him back. God wants Ishmael and Isaac both. He'll take one away and keep them. He'll give you back the other, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. Abraham made his mistakes. He told a half a, half a truth down in Egypt during the famine, you remember. But don't forget that half a truth is half a lie. If it's just half the truth, the other half's bound to be a lie. Now I read in Hebrews 11, by faith he obeyed. I think that's a good basis for that old song, Trust and Obey. I used to ride the railroads, the C and O and the B and O, but the best one's the T and O. Trust and Obey. And Romans 4.20 tells me that he staggered not at the promise of God. Some people have been saved from sin, but never been saved from the staggers. They're still staggering around. James said, we're to pray in faith, nothing wavering. You're going to get on in your journey. You must learn to walk without wobbling. And finally, God said to Abraham, 
get home. Get out, get on, get home. We're not always sure of our earthly destination, but we're sure of our heavenly destiny. He looked for a city that hath foundations. Why does the book say that? Because Abraham never lived in anything that had any foundations. He lived in tents. He was a nomad. And the only security he had were those pegs driven into the desert sand, and that's not much security. And that's not much of a foundation. No wonder he looked for something that had a foundation under it. I don't hear many sermons today about heaven. The average church member has a rather nebulous idea, if any, about it. Heaven and hell have become bywords, and in the hour of death and bereavement, sort of a fleeting interest in the hereafter. Strangely enough, though, demonic deceptions on the rise, multitudes have gone after witches, and seances, and sorcerers, and fortune tellers, and ESP, and hallucinations, and hocus pocus about the life beyond. There's very little homesickness for heaven. Billy Graham said to me some time ago in a telephone conversation that he used to hear people talk about being homesick for heaven. He said, didn't hear that much anymore, but he said sometimes under the pressures, I know what that means. I think I do too. He used to sing, when I can read my title clear to mansions in the sky. I haven't heard that in a long time. My latest sun is sinking fast. Come angel band, around me stand. Bear me away on your snowy land. Every Christian's going home, but there ought to be a zest and a thrill about it, friend. When I grew up in the country down here in Catawba County, my father and I raised a little corn down in the hollow. You understand I mean the corn that grows on the stove. <laughs> they raise the other kind up here in this part of the country. <laughs> and we had an old horse, and I observed quite early the strangest thing about that old plow horse. Of a morning, when you'd have thought he'd have been chipper and bright, he'd had a good night's sleep and a good breakfast. He went down that hill like he was going to be shot when he got down to the bottom because he was going to work and knew it. Saddest looking horse I ever saw in my life. But would you believe it that along about sundown, when we started up the hill, although he'd worked all day and you thought he would barely make it, he did make it. He made time up that hill because he knew the work was over and he was going home. And I said to myself, if an old farm horse can belie his weariness at the end of day because he's going home. Ought I not be able to sing and say one sweetly solemn thought comes to me o'er and o'er. I'm nearer to my heavenly home than I've ever been before. I have a spell of that every once in a while. Thank God when evening comes, I say I'm one day nearer home. It ought to mean something. And so it's a good thing to remember as you go that you don't have to wait till you actually get there to enjoy some of the benefits. The trees bend over the wall, and you can pluck a little of the fruit before you get there. That's what the earnest of our inheritance means. 
the down payment in advance. That's what Fanny Crosby was writing about blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste. Glory to God. You have to wait till you get to heaven. You can have a few samples of it right now. I preached along this line in Midland, Texas some years ago. Great church there. And Dr. O'Brien was teaching Job and I was trying to preach. And that night, as I started back to the motel, all at once he broke out singing that verse out of Marching Design. And I must confess as many times as I've heard that song, I didn't know about this really. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. You don't have to wait till you get there. You can enjoy a little of it ahead of time. And the Holy Spirit in your heart is the earnest, the first installment, the down payment of your inheritance. And it ought to whet your appetite and make you ready to sing, Then we shall be where we would be, then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now nor could be, soon shall be our own. I love to hear them sing that in Moody Church. I love to hear it anywhere. It's great to be a pilgrim. And God's advice to you is get out and get on and get home. Let us stand, please. We thank Thee, our Father, for the fact that we are exiles and aliens in a pagan land going somewhere better. Bless our hearts with the application of Thy Word and help us to walk in the light of the evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.